Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at the district.church. I know Dwayne already asked this. That was great. Uh, how are we doing this morning? Good. Good? Good. <laughs> I, uh, I, was a bit, I was a bit worried. This week I came back from Texas and we got to experience great weather. 60, 70 degrees. It was nice. Come back and got pictures of snow on the ground. I wasn't ready for that. I just don't understand what, like, why can't we get spring already? Like, come on. That's what I'm waiting for, just to be able to windows down, house windows open, right? Spring is in the air. All this other stuff. But anyways, we're here, and uh, we're going to praise God for what he's given us. So we are continuing to walk through this sermon at Pentecost, right? Last week we looked at Peter preaching to the thousands Skeptics hearing the word of God, and as we will see today, people being saved. If you're here last week, we looked at a one one major point, and, and I'm going to continue that same point this morning, is that the Holy Spirit is the one that brings change. The Holy Spirit brings change to the apostles. Uh, we saw that Peter, like 60 days before all of this is going on, is a coward, right? He denies Christ three times. He runs out of the garden, he's, he's just scared. They, you find him in the New Testament as Jesus comes back and is resurrected, you find him running back to his old life. But the Holy Spirit brings change. As, as we saw a couple weeks ago, as the following the Holy Spirit comes to the apostles as they're praying in the upper room, there's just this attitude of emboldenment. Men standing before thousands and thousands of people, calling them to repent and believe upon Christ. So you see this change happen. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that somebody who, like Peter, can go from a coward to a man standing in front of many men and women, calling them to salvation. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that that change happens. And so this morning, from that change, we're going to look at the change of the listeners. And I'm going to read to you, kind of give you a background of what's going on. If you don't remember last week, this background... Um, is that you've got the Holy Spirit falling, you've got a rushing wind coming in, and then you've got people who are uh, speaking in tongues, different languages. Everybody comes outside to this rushing wind, and they're like, what's going on? And as the Bible describes, and I think this, even reading it this week is still crazy, you've got the apostles praying in the upper room, and fire kind of rests on them. Like, fire rests on somebody's shoulders and they're not burning. I don't know what you would do about that. If I'm praying with Wayne in a room, he's got fire on his shoulder. I, I, I just think Ezra probably lit him on fire. But I, I don't know what I'd do. But this is the scene that you have. It's kind of a, a crazy scene that the Holy Spirit comes and brings himself to the apostles. And it's so loud that people are wondering, they're perplexed, and they're amazed. And yet some are skeptical, right? They're like, hey, these guys are probably just drunk. Peter will address that this week um, in talking to the skeptics. But this is the scene that we have. So if you'll open up your Bibles back to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. This is what we're going to be looking at today. And as you're turning there, I just want you to remember, it's the Holy Spirit that brings change. And what we're going to see today is the Holy Spirit bringing change to the listeners, 
but not just the listeners of that time. The Holy Spirit brings strength to us today. So I want to focus on those two things this morning. So if you'll follow along with me in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some around you. There will be up on the screen as well. So I'm just letting you know you guys can follow along. So verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn within the oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured out that he is poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of God. Let's go to him in prayer and ask him to bless us. Lord, thank you 
We want to praise you this morning. Exalt you for you are good. You show sinners like us mercy and grace. For you sent Christ to be our sacrifice in order that we could be seen and loved and known and delighted by you. Lord, we thank you for the grace you've shown us. And Lord, as we walk through this passage this morning, may it challenge us. May it stir our hearts for those who don't know you. Lord, I pray that if there is anybody in here that doesn't know you, that they would ask the same question, what do we do? And Lord, I pray that your saving grace would come upon them. They would receive the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of their sins and be covered. Lord, I ask this in your precious Son's name. So the first thing that we see, right, is Peter getting up. He's, he's talking to the crowd. This emboldened apostle. And what's the first thing he says? You guys, listen up. Here's what's going on. Nobody's drunk this morning. It's not 5 o'clock somewhere in Jerusalem. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. We've been praying and longing and fasting for the Holy Spirit. Nobody's drunk. So listen up. He's talking to the skeptics. He's pointing them out and saying, this is what's actually happened. As we talked last week, he pleaded with his Jewish brothers and his Jewish sisters, saying, look, all that we know, all that we learned, all that we've been taught in the Old Testament has now come to pass. The Messiah has come. Put your trust in him. And he calls upon those listening to repent and believe. This emboldened apostle. That's the change we saw last week. What we're going to look at this week is how they responded. How the crowd took the gospel. How the crowd took being told they crucified Christ. I don't know about you. I wouldn't have been happy. Somebody comes up, I don't even know who this Peter guy is. Tells me twice I crucified Jesus. I wouldn't be very happy about that. Let's look at the response that we see in verse 37. There's two ways that they responded. The first one is that they were cut to the heart. And the second one is they started to search for their hope. So the first one, being cut to the heart, we know why they were cut to the heart, right? Because they gave Jesus a bad name. Nobody gets that. Shot to the heart. And you're to blame. Because we're going to be singing, right? You give a, a bad name. There we go. This is, my, this is my intro to the band. I'm just kidding. Please don't. But they were cut to the heart, right? Upon hearing that they needed to repent and believe, that they needed to place their trust in Christ, that they and their sins had crucified him. They were cut to the heart. Now think about this for a second, because this is amazing. You've got men and women who are Jews, who had grown up in the Old Testament, who had grown up seeing that their traditions were the only way. They were willing to put Jesus to death for claiming that he was the Messiah. 
60 days prior, whether we believe that everyone in this crowd was the one yelling, crucify him, or if there's just a small crowd, these were still the Jews that held fast to their Old Testament traditions. They saw their traditions as divine. Matthew Henry puts it like this, they were bred up in the opinion of the sufficiency of their religion to save them. And they just saw this Jesus crucified in weakness and disgrace and were told by their rulers that he was a deceiver. The Old Testament shows that a person who dies on a cross or a tree is condemned. So the Old Testament prove or show or point to that somebody who dies on a tree is condemned. So how can this Christ who went to the cross in weakness and disgrace be the Messiah? Yet Peter's sermon cuts them right through their arrogance. He cuts right through their pride. He cuts right through their skepticism and goes straight to the heart. And honestly, if we know our word, we know the scripture, this shouldn't shock us, right? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is a living and active sword, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. It cuts straight to the heart. Ephesians 6.17 tells us to take the sword of spirit, which is the Word of God. This is what we should take to battle every single day as believers in Christ, is this sword. The reason the Word of God can have such power to lay upon the heart is because it, because it is the sword of the spirit. It's not man's sword. It does not merely have man's endorsement or man's power behind it. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. The true Word of God is His Word, and He loves it and honors it and empowers it. And this is why we see, as Peter preaches the Word of God, these Jews who were arrogant, trusting in their own traditions, were cut straight to the heart. And guys, this hasn't changed. The word of God, the power of God has not changed. As Romans would tell us, it is the power unto salvation for all who would believe. So we're called to go and preach it. Sharing the life of Christ and the gospel of his salvation. Praying and longing for it to cut the heart of those around us. And the second thing that we see the response is that they were searching for hope. Right? They're cut to the heart. They ask the question, what do I do? So growing up in a family of six, uh, there were a lot of times that, not a lot of times, so I don't want to throw my mom on glass, but there were times where she forgot her children. And I say her children because she never forgot me. I called her and made sure of that. I was like, Mom, did you ever forget me? She's like, no. Okay, oldest. That's what, that's what happens when you're oldest. Everybody focuses on you. Anyway, anybody oldest in here? That's right. Anyway. But I did ask her. I did ask her when when she did lose or, or realize that one of her children were gone. Like what happened? What came about? And she told me there was this one time Anna, one of my sisters, we were in a park, and she realized that Anna was no longer there. And this very real fear came about. This, what do I do? 
I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go, where to look. My, my child is gone. And if anybody has kids in here, or if you've watched somebody's child and realized they're no longer there, this fear, right? This fear comes about, what am I supposed to do? This is our picture the listeners have had. This very real fear that their sins put Christ on the cross and they don't know what to do. And so they ask the question, what do we do? Where do we go? If my sin has put Christ on the cross, Peter, you haven't shown me anything that I need to do to be saved. So they ask the question. This work of the Holy Spirit changing their hearts brings the revelation of sin and shame and the need for salvation. And guys, what a, what a beautiful picture, right? This is what we long for as we preach Christ. What a wonderful thing it is when after years of running from God and years of denial and rebellion, a person can no longer resist the word and the spirit of God when they say, what must I do? I pray this for our church, that the Lord would so fill us with the Spirit and the Word of God that week after week after week after week, people would ask the question, what must I do? One of the best times, if not the best time in my life, is being able to see this play out in one of my friends. Back in Florida, I had this friend probably three years ago. He shoots me a text message says, hey man, um, what's a good Bible to pick up? And at this time, he was a self-proclaimed atheist. He was an engineer, super smart, still is. Goes and sees this movie, God's Not Dead. And as much as I like to hate on those movies, God used it. He gives me a call and says, what, what's, the good, what's the best Bible to look at? So I give him my opinion and goes and buys that Bible. Then I follow up and say, hey, if you ever want to talk about what you're reading, let's go grab a drink. And so we did, two days later. And it was around this time, around the NFL drafts time. And so we sat down. I, it's a, I, every time I remember the draft, I remember this. That's why I can remember this. It's a good reminder, right? Um, and so we go and we sit and we're talking about what the difference between Catholicism and Christianity is. We walk through the gospel that Christ has done all that we need for Catholicism is works, that you need to work your way for God to be pleased with you. So that night ended. He didn't accept Christ then, but he started to come to church, started to have conversations with me and Dwayne and the rest of the guys at Desire back at home. And then one night I get a call. My buddy Eddie had said, hey man, I just got out of a small group and I wanted to tell you and you'd be the first one to know I just accepted Christ. He's like, I was in small group and I realized as these men and women here realized they needed hope. They needed salvation. And so he accepted Christ that night. And he called me. And he said, man, I just accepted Christ and I want you to baptize me. 
That's one of the greatest experiences and moments in my entire life, to see someone ask the question, what must I do, and then they're saved. They call upon the name of the Lord, and they're saved. And my prayer for this church, my prayer for you guys, is you would feel that same joy and have that same experience. And week after week after week, people would ask, because our love for Christ and our knowledge of the Scriptures, they would ask, what must we do? But in them asking that question, Peter just didn't leave the hanging. Right? He didn't go, well, I'm going I'm to go walk away. You guys can deal with whatever you need to. He responds. Peter gives them an answer. He gives them an answer in two ways. He tells them that they need forgiveness of sins and that they need the gift of the Holy Spirit. We see this in verse 39. Yeah, 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to submit to you something this morning when we talk about the forgiveness of sins. It's this idea that's entrenched in our world. We've got different names for it. Karma, relativism, your life is the best way for you. Live your life how you want to. What I want to submit to you, and, and trust me, I, I didn't come up with this. I'm actually stealing it from a pastor. Don't, don't, think, you're as, don't think of me as the smartest man that I know. Yeah, exactly. But this idea of relativism, especially within the church, but even more so in the world, maximizes the absoluteness of self and lowers the need for forgiveness and grace. Hear me out on this. One of the saddest things about relativism in our day is that it undermines God's forgiveness. It constantly minimizes or denies the absoluteness of God, and it functions implicitly as if God had no clear and unchanging character, as though there was no divine measure for our human character. Relativism does not get along well with biblical statements like, Be holy, for I am holy, or be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Relativism minimizes the absoluteness of God and his will, and it maximizes the absoluteness of self. It says that the way of healing and wholeness is to stop measuring yourself by external standards or expectations, even God's. But instead, without reference to God or his word, be yourself. Make yourself the measure of what is good and acceptable. Give yourself unconditional, positive self-regard. The only role that God has to play is to endorse your life. God functions as a kind of booster for the absoluteness of self. And if he presents himself as one whose standards or condemnations and commandments are against you, then he is part of the problem, not the solution. So relativism also destroys forgiveness. It destroys forgiveness because it undermines the glory of God's grace. Now listen to this. It sounds great that on the surface there's no law. It sounds great when there's no standard to live up to, no expectations or commandments or threats, that God is simply there to affirm 
me in whatever I do. That sounds great, right? That sounds like grace, but it's not. It sounds like freedom, but it's not. The problem with relativism is it destroys forgiveness. When there is no law, no standard, no legitimate expectation, nor normative way of relating to God and man, there can be no forgiveness. Because forgiveness is letting go of real offenses, real transgressions, real violations, real, real faults. But if there is no law, if there's no transgressions, if there's no standard to offend against, no expectations to violate, or no commandments to disobey, then there can be no forgiveness. What looked like grace and freedom turns out to be the undermining of grace by the undermining of forgiveness. But yet there's biblical hope here. There is hope that we have, and it comes from the verse 37. It's not a relativistic one. These people were cut to the heart because they saw that God had made Jesus Lord and Christ, but they had killed him. In other words, they were utterly at odds with God. They were living against his will, and they were out of step with his character, and they were in violation of his word and his son. God was the only way, and they thought their way was the right way. What they desperately needed, guys, I want you to hear this morning, what we desperately need is God's amazing grace. And God was ready to give it, ready to forgive. They had offended God. They violated his law. They disobeyed him. There was only one way of hope, that God might find a way to be the holy God that he is and let it go. This is exactly what he did through Jesus on the cross. He sees our sin. He sees our shame. He sees our disobedience and offenses against him. And he lets it go through Christ on the cross. He forgives. So I want you to take the words of verse 40 that Peter preaches this morning. Be saved from this crooked generation. Because the most crooked thing about our own ideas, our own self, relativism, is that we've created ways of salvation without God and therefore without law and therefore without forgiveness. And without forgiveness, there is utterly no hope. But I declare to you this morning on the basis of God's word that there is a God. There is a law, and in the name of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. So if you don't know him this morning, you have place of your trust in him this morning. Peter's message is still the same. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who repent and believe in Christ as Savior will be saved, and the forgiveness of sins will be washed away. And God stands ready to meet you where you are. So that's the first thing that they needed to receive, is forgiveness of sins. The second was that they needed to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's first response is that they needed to repent and be baptized in order to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I want to break that down really quickly. Okay? Repent and be baptized. There are two different things. First, what it means to repent. 
Repentance is, is a challenging word for us today, right? Nobody likes to hear that they have to make a change. Nobody likes to have to go against what they want to do, especially when this world is all about me, to hear the word repent is an offense. Repentance is a change in who we are, our whole self. It's not a regret, it's not a feeling bad about something or what we've done, but a grieving within our soul that we have sinned against the holy God. Paul tells us that godly sorrow leads us to repentance. Paul would later preach and acts upon repentance to the church. This is what he says. Open, he prays that they would open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of their sins. This is what repentance looks like. It's a turning away from darkness. It's a turning away from Satan to the light of the gospel. And it's a daily posture of our hearts before a holy God that we are still sinners and we need more of Jesus. I echo what Luther has to say when it comes to the believer in Christ. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says to repent, he intended that the entire life of a believer should be repentance. It's a posture of heart. It's a humbling ourselves before a holy God, saying sin has been ingrained within me. I need your grace, I need your mercy, and I need you to make me into the image of Christ. So therefore I repent. This is why we practice confession week in and week out. Although you're not going to do it today. <laughs> we practice it not so that we can bog down each other of our sins. Not that we can be reminded of our sins to feel weary and the weight of those sins. But we confess because we know that in repentance, we have hope. We know that we have, when we have a humble heart looking at a holy God, we can't help but see our sin in light of him and repent and long for change. So Peter tells them, first, repent. Turn from your wicked ways. And then he says to be baptized. Now I want to be careful this morning because what I'm not saying is that salvation comes from baptism. There are some who believe that. We do not. We are Baptists, but we believe that baptism is an outward expression of an inward change or an inward hope, right? It is going under the water, being buried in the likeness of Christ, being raised in the newness of life. What Peter is not saying here is that baptism is going to equal salvation for you. Throughout the New Testament, what we see with baptism is a follows repentance. It follows those who have called upon the name of the Lord. And so with that internal change, that internal reality, comes the external expression. And so it follows that pattern. But it doesn't mean salvation. I would say it actually means something like this. And what Peter says is repenting be baptized can also be both receive the forgiveness of your sins by repenting and by believing in the name of Jesus Christ, which you signify through baptism. If you're in here this morning, as I said earlier, and you don't know the love of Christ is your hope, I plead if you do not leave here this morning without talking to me or talking to Dwayne about what it means to be a follower of Christ. But also, 
mean, if you haven't been baptized yet, if you haven't made that external expression to signify what you believe, come talk to Glenn or I. We would love to walk down that path of what it looks like to be baptized. We would love to be able to baptize you here. What a celebration that would be, right? Your first baptism with your family, members, the body of Christ. If you haven't been baptized, please, please come let us know. So, what we see in this first sermon is the change of Peter and the change of the listeners. They hear the gospel call, they're pricked in heart, they're cut to the heart, and they ask, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's what happened at Pentecost. 3,000 believers were saved. And we celebrate that, right? But guess what? It didn't stop there. The Holy Spirit still brings change today. Peter's sermon is still the same as it was 2,000 years ago. Peter said the promise, the promise of salvation is for you, and at that time he's talking to a listener, for your children. But he also says for all who are far off. And far off can mean in a different location, far off can mean in a different time frame. So 2,000 years later, we are those who are far off. But I'll submit to you today, it also means those who we feel like God can never bring back. Those who are far off and are running away from God. So the call to repent and believe in Christ is the same. This message is still true. And guys, as the church, as those who believe in Christ, we are called to now go take that message back to the darkness. We are called out of that darkness into the marvelous light by the gospel of Christ. And God calls us to go back into that darkness with the gift that we've been given. Listen to what Paul has to say in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Guys, who has the beautiful feet of the gospel this morning? You and I. We have the beautiful feet of those who bring the gospel of Christ. And we are called to go and do that. And guys, God's big plan for where you are, hear me on this. God's big plan for where you are is you. It's not Dwayne. It's not myself. It's not this church. It's you. In your schools, in your jobs, in your neighborhoods. In your homes, God's big plan for where you are is you. No one will influence your circle and sphere of friends more than you. He got to save you. 
He called you to go. Matthew 28 tells us, go and make disciples. The Greek there is, go as you are. And make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, we walked through this a couple weeks ago. It says, go to Jerusalem. Go to Judea and Samaria. Go to the ends of the earth. Our gospel call is to take the light into a dark world and share the gift we've been given. Now, if you ever notice this in Jesus' call in Acts 1.8, Judea and Samaria, he uses that as one, right? There's Jerusalem, comma, Judea and Samaria, comma, community there. And I want to submit to you this morning that he did that on purpose. Because for a Jewish man or woman to hear that they have to go and bring the gospel to Samaria would be a slap in the face. Judea was the brothers and sisters. You know, they're, they're my Jew brothers and sisters. They're the people I grew up with. Samaria were the people they hated. Samaria is a country that the Jews would walk around to get to Galilee. I mean, they wouldn't even walk through. They would rather go 300 miles around the country instead of have to walk through this dirty, poor, inhabited place. And Jesus is very clear through his ministry that the gospel call is for those that you despise and hate. Because he uses the Samaritans as that example. The woman at the well is a Samaritan. The good Samaritan is a huge story that we still know and preach today. And Jesus is very clear and very intentional about using the Samaritans as an example to show that the gospel is supposed to go to those we hate and despise. Those we don't get along with those we feel awkward around. They need the gospel too, and our call is to go to them. Wouldn't you think that as Peter's preaching, if they have the Acts 28 model in mind, that those who are far off, probably the Samaritans, right? That God would never say to people like that. But this is the call. And this is the promise of the gospel. It is for you, and your children, and those who are far off. And as we begin to end this morning, I, I want to focus on the last verse. Present. Peter gives two promises in that verse. Peter says the promise of the gospel is for you, your children, and for all who are far off. And the second promise this morning from that verse is that we get to take part in the job that God has already I'm going to unpack that really quickly for you guys this morning. I'm going to read this first promise in verse 35. The gospel is for all who are far off. I find hope. I find hope because my life, my life has people who are far off. Who are running from the truth of the gospel. Who sometimes I think are too far gone. But when I read this verse, I find hope and freedom because God's call is to all who are far off. And we serve a God of miracles. And it's in this hope that I can wait and I can pray and I can long and fast for those who are far off that God can change their heart. And it's a change that only he can how freeing is that? 
that the gospel can change those who are off, and it's, it's not on me. Yeah, how tough is that? Right. How hard is it for us to just wait? Sometimes we feel like prayer is not enough, and so we have to say these right words, we have to give in this right moment, we have to do something in order for their hearts to change. Then jump over to Acts 8. I want to show you how God can change even those who are far off. Starting in verse 1, it says, Saul approved from his execution. This is referencing Stephen being stoned after his long sermon. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, who made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to silence. This verse gives me hope because. One chapter later, after we see Saul persecuting, murdering, executing believers, committing them to prison, going in and out of houses, breaking up families, we see in Acts 9, Jesus meeting Saul on the road to Damascus and changing his heart, saving him, and making him into one of, if not the greatest missionary this earth has ever seen. And if God can change a man who has murderous threats, who has murder in his blood, he is a murderer. If God can change him, who can't God save? Who can't God change? I know it's not easy to wait. I know it's not easy to just, what we would think, sit back and long for change. But God shows us that he can do it. And he also gives us promises that if we wait in him, there's hope. David says, for God alone, all my soul wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O oh, people, pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge for us. We can wait and hope and pray and fast and long for change, even for those who are far off in our lives. And we can wait and hope, because God is a God of miracles. He can change the heart, even of those who we feel are too far gone. The other promise that I see this morning from verse 39 is that we get to take part in the job that God has already done. This is the most amazing thing to me. The promise is for all who the Lord our God calls to himself. When God went to the cross and said, it is finished, he sealed the names in the book of life. Those who God has called, he's going to justify, and those who he justifies, he's going to glorify. So it's God who's calling, it's God who's saving the job is already done. But God calls us to go and share the gospel 
He doesn't need us to save people, but he calls us and invites us in to be a part of the miracle of salvation. You guys get that? It's like a, it's like a permanent bring your child to work day. God is doing the work of salvation, and he's calling and inviting us to be a part of this joy and this glory. We wouldn't have to do that. We get joy and happiness. We get to celebrate in people being saved, the work that God has done. Charles Spurgeon says, every man's conversion is a freshly printed copy of a poem of salvation. We get to be a part of that hope. We get to be a part of that picture of God saving men and women to himself. It shouldn't be a weary task for us, but a celebration that God is inviting us into. But man, my buddy Eddie, when he called me and told me he was saved, when he had accepted Christ, that he wanted me to baptize him, and I was with Wayne. We were at my house back in Florida. I got the call, and man, we just celebrate. We praise God that we got to be a part of a salvation that God had done. And that's what we get to enter into. That's what we get to celebrate. The 3,000 here in Acts aren't the only ones that get, get saved. The call continues to go out, and we get to be a part of that. I submit to you guys this morning, it's a celebration that we get to be a part of. It is a joy and an honor and a happiness that God is doing this, and the weight is not on us, but we get to be a part of it. I'm reminded of Luke 15. When one is saved, when one lost comes home, there's joy in heaven. The angels rejoice. We get to be here on earth celebrating as well. But not only that, when we have an eternal perspective, we get to recognize that those who we've been a part of being saved will one day celebrate with them at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Listen to what John has to say in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to close herself with fine linen, right and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Guys, when we have an eternal perspective, when we view this going and calling to those who are far off, we have an eternal perspective, we have this joy. We have this understanding that we are going to be able to celebrate here on earth as well as in eternity with those who have been saved by God. We get to come alongside. We are invited to come and work with God in his salvation. And as we talked about this tonight, Those who believe Christ is the Savior, this is the task that God has called us to. This is the joy that he invites us in. This is why we wanted to end this sermon with a celebratory singing and praising God. 
because he has saved us, he is saving us, and then he's called us to go and be a part of his saving work. And this is our call, the joy we get to enter into. So if the band would come down, we're going to go ahead and start to close out. We're going to celebrate what God has done this morning. We're going to do that through prayer, and we're going to do that through worship. And the assurance that we have this morning as we close out is that God has called us to something that he has already done. And we get the joy and the promise to see God's glory and the growth of his kingdom as believers in Christ. And all we have to do is go. It seems so simple, right? All we have to do, all, all we have to do is go. Go as you are. Share life and the gospel with those around you. So that's my challenge for us this morning. As we celebrate and praise God for what he has done and is doing, is that we would have a burden and we would have a longing to be a part of God's saving work. And that we would see the joy and we would be able to celebrate in what he is doing. So let's close in prayer. Man, let's get after the Lord this morning. Let's get after him in praise that he is doing this work. And he's using us. He's inviting us into the saving work. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at